Please take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 is not really my text for preaching today, but I just want to read one verse from Matthew 1 as we begin. Since tomorrow is Christmas Day and many of our minds are on the subject of the Incarnation, Christ becoming a man and coming into this world. And Matthew 1 verse 21 is one of the great texts of the Bible that explains to us about Jesus coming into the world and why in particular he did come into the world. And here's what it says, and these are the words of the angel of the Lord, who it says in verse 20, appeared to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, his true father was God, but his earthly father the husband of Mary, his mother, heard these words from the angel about Jesus. Speaking of Mary, his wife, it says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." The name Jesus means literally save or savior. And so it tells us that the reason Jesus came into this world is to save his people from their sins. And knowing what passage I've been pre preaching lately, perhaps you've already put two and two together. But my passage for the day is really Romans 6 once again, because Romans 6 focuses on one aspect of Jesus saving his people from their sins, focuses on that reality of the fact that he did save his people from their sins, and this gives us one element of that salvation. So I'll be preaching once again from the first part of Romans 6, so you can turn there. I won't read from that text yet, I'll be reading from it as I preach but let's look to God and ask for his help once again as we consider the way that Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ who came into this world to save his people from their sins. Thank you that he has done that through his work on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead, and for the way that those realities make an impact on the lives of his people here and now in this life. And they will make an impact forever in glory after the resurrection. Help us now to understand the teaching of your word here in this part of the Bible, Romans chapter 6. We thank you for this chapter and this entire epistle and ask that we might better understand the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we study in this chapter once again today, we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Well, you'll remember that in chapter 5, Paul taught about Jesus Christ as the second Adam, or the last Adam. And after we had that chapter, Paul opens chapter 6, with this question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul answers that question starting in verse 2 with an emphatic no. He says, absolutely not. Certainly not is how my version translates those first two Greek words there in Romans 6 verse 2. And he goes on to say that you should not continue in sin if you're a Christian. Don't conclude that that makes grace abound if you abound in your sin after you've been saved. Paul says, no, Christ was crucified. Don't continue in sin. Christ died. 
Christ was buried. You are united to him if you're a Christian. So you have died to sin, that means. And he was also raised from the dead. So as he says here in Romans chapter 6, that means you, if you are a Christian, you too were raised from the dead in a certain way. As he says it here in Romans 6, you were raised to newness of life. And as, as we saw, that means, that means resurrection life for you in the here and now does not mean rising out of your physical grave yet. But in this life, it means simply living like a Christian. That's what rising to newness of life means. As it says at the end of Romans 6, 4, we should walk in newness of life. If we've been buried with Christ and raised with Christ in a spiritual sense, it should have an impact on the way we live. As it says at the end of verse 6, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Well, last week we began to consider verses 8 to 11 of Romans 6. I thought I might make it through those verses. I didn't get very far at all, just to verse 8. And there we saw what I referred to as our confidence after Paul stated that if you're a Christian, because of union with Christ, that very important and precious doctrine, because of our union with Christ, our oneness with him spiritually, we have died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ so that we should walk in newness of life. We might say easier said than done. So Paul makes this statement in verse 8 about our confidence. That's how I entitled it. Our confidence is this. Look at verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we've been converted, we've come to repentance from our sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. He died and was raised, so were we then, if we're Christians, true believers. To a degree, I said, this is a restatement of what we have in verse 5, where Paul says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. But the point of verse 8 is this, since you are united to Christ, you were united with him in his death. If you were united with him in his death, so you shall be in his life. He died and he rose. And Paul's saying, in some way, that's true of you also if you're a Christian. And that life that you are raised to when you become a believer is this life, the one we're living in right here and now. I already read the end of verse 6 and the end of verse 4 that makes that point. I quoted last week from John Murray on this subject of union with Christ, where he said, union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And in Romans 6, the point Paul is making is this. Union with Christ is the reason that you and I as Christians can walk in newness of life. Our lives can be different from what they were before when we just, in a sense, lived and breathed sin, ate and drank sin. Our lives can be different because of our union with Christ who died and rose. In fact, we could state it this way. Our union with Christ is the reason that we must walk in newness of life. It is the reason, to put it as Paul does in verse 14, that we will walk in newness of life. Look at verse 14. We'll come to that in a week or two, God willing. Paul says there, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So there's our confidence regarding life in Christ. That's my overall heading of verses 8 to 11. Verse 8, I just entitled our confidence. So here's where we begin the new material for today, starting at verse 9. And I'm entitling the first two verses there, verses 9 and 10, the basis for our confidence. So verse 8 tells us that we have confidence that we can walk in newness of life. 
Verses 9 and 10 give us the reason. Starting in the middle of the sentence in verse 9, it says, knowing, here's the reason we can have confidence that we will live in newness of life, walk in newness of life, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died once to sin, once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So let's notice the basis of our confidence and I'm breaking it down into three things. And the first one is this. We can be confident that we will walk in newness of life. Remember, it's based on our union with Christ. Something happened to him. He died. He was buried. He rose. If you're a Christian, something happened to you in a spiritual sense. You died and were buried with Christ, as it says in this chapter. And then you rose with Christ to newness of life. So the first thing we want to notice is this. This passage here, verses 9 and 10, teaches that Christ's death was final. It was once for all. It was a one-time only death. Jesus raised a few people to life. The son of the widow of Nain, the, um, the man named Lazarus, his friend, at some point, they died again. That didn't happen with Jesus. He rose, he lived, he still lives. He'll live forevermore. His death was final. It was once for all. Look at verses 9 and following again. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Christ's death happened once. He came into this world to save his people from their sins. And to do that, he had to die, the scriptures teach. Did he have to die many times because he saved many sinners? No. Did he have to die many times because he saved them from many, many, many sins? No. It's a blasphemy, actually, that the Roman Catholic Church says that they repeat, really, this is the teaching of Roman Catholicism, Christ's death every single time a Mass is observed. It's not only false, it's not only foolishness, it's blasphemy. Scripture emphasizes here, and especially in the book of Hebrews, he died once. That's it. Period. His death was a one-time death, but it was perfectly effective to save his people. It was not ever repeated, nor will it ever be repeated. Just look at a couple of passages in Hebrews, as I mentioned. Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28 where the writer makes this point right at the end of Hebrews 9. It says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, that's the general rule, like I said, Lazarus and um, the son of the widow of Nain and a number of other people in the Bible who were raised from the dead, they died again. But the general rule is this, it's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. And he did bear their sins when he died on the cross. And it doesn't have to happen again. And it never did happen again. And it never will. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. Apart from sin, in other words, not to deal with sin, but to welcome his people to glory and to judge his enemies. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. He just died once. Hebrews 7 verse 27 makes the same point. Speaking of Christ, our high priest, as it starts out in verse 26, he says this about him. Who does not need daily as those Old Testament priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. He doesn't have to do what he does daily. Not on the cross. Not in a mass. 
No, he doesn't die again. He doesn't do that daily like those priests. First for his own sins, die, and then for the people's. He had no sin of his own. It says, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. As it says in the book of Acts in chapter 2, when Peter was preaching to the people who had come to celebrate uh, Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem, he said that death no longer holds Jesus Christ captive. It couldn't hold him. Paul preached in, in um, Acts chapter 13, verse 34, these words, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead no more to return to corruption. It was a once-for-all death. And we read these words in Revelation 1, verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's the point being made here in Romans chapter 6, and verse 9 and 10, where it says that the death he died, he dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ's death was death by crucifixion. However long it took to someone, for someone to die by crucifixion, sometimes it took days, we're told. That's why they broke the legs of the thieves on the cross. For Jesus, it didn't take that long. He was dead when the soldiers came to check him. They put a spear in his side just to make sure, and it was evident that he was dead because not only blood poured out of his side, but blood and water because his heart, the sack around his heart, had burst and water was added to the blood. Remember how the theme of union with Christ then runs all through this passage. So Christ died, and he died once for all. So the same, in some way, will be true of our death to sin. I quoted Galatians 6.14 in the last couple of weeks, where Paul spoke about having died to sin, and he stated it in these terms of crucifixion. And he says that, I was crucified with Christ. He said, when I became a Christian, the world was crucified to me, and I was crucified to the world. He's talking about this same thing. And the point for us here is this. Conversion only happens once. You don't get saved by repenting and believing in Christ and then start living like a worldling again and, oh, you're unsaved. That doesn't happen. The Bible teaches you only get saved once. Conversion, true conversion only happens once. And just like Jesus' death to overcome sin for us, our death to sin and conversion is effective and it will never be repeated. So we're looking at the basis of our confidence. Why can we be so confident? Verse 8 that we will walk in newness of life, or as it states it there, that we will live with him just as we've died with him. Why can we be so confident first? Because Christ's death was final. It was once for all. Second, we can be confident for this reason, because Christ's death was a death to sin. Notice the first part of verse 10. For the death that he died... He died to sin once for all. So Christ died and his death was to sin. Again, keep in mind where Paul is, is headed. We're united to Christ, so there's some impact on me and on you, if you're a Christian, that comes from Christ's death. Because we were in him when he died, and when we were converted, there was in, in some ways... Um, an, an outworking or an imitation on our part of Christ's death to sin. That's where Paul is headed with this. So let me stop here for a moment and think of a number of differences between Christ's death and ours. And we'll start with this. Christ, when he died, was not only a man so that he could die, but the Bible teaches he was God and man. Two natures, divine and human, together inseparably 
in one person. That's the Son of God incarnate. The Word of God, the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, John 1.14 says, became flesh, a true man, not a half man, not a part man, a whole man. So he's wholly human and wholly divine together in one person. But here's the huge difference. He is what we are, a man, but he's also what we are not. He is God and we are not. There's one mediator, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, one mediator between God and man, that is the man, Christ Jesus. You are what he is. He's still a man in heaven, but you're not all that he is. He's God. We start there with differences between Christ and us as we think about his death. Secondly, we can say this. At some points, there is absolutely no comparison between his death and ours. His death to sin, as Scripture says here, or his death for sin, and our death to sin. Our death to sin when we are converted is a death to sin, but it's not a saving death. It's not an atoning death. It's not a redemptive death. When we died to sin, as Paul says, we weren't atoning for our own sins. We certainly weren't atoning for everyone else's or anyone else's sins, let alone the sins of all the elect of all the ages. No, our death is not a saving thing. Our death to sin is not a substitutionary death. When Christ died on the cross, it was as a substitution for sinners like you and me so that we would not have to die and face the wrath of God for our sin. Our death was not a death when we died in Christ, when we came to faith in him. Our death to sin was not a death of judicial punishment in any way. It was a death to sin that would bring us to life, to God in Jesus Christ. His death was all of those things. It was saving, it was atoning, it was redemptive, it was substitutionary, it was a death to suffer judicial punishment, not for his own sins, but for his people's. Our death was none of those things. Further, as we think of the death of Christ, we know that the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And someone might conclude when he hears that Christ died on a cross, he must have been a sinner. That's what a lot of people thought. They said, well, he wouldn't be dying on a tree, hanging on a tree, if he wasn't a sinner. Because the Bible itself says, cursed is he who is hanging on a tree. But the key there is he was cursed because of union with sinners like us. We were identified with him and he with us. And that's why he died. He never was a sinner, though, even though he died in the place of sinners. He never was a sinner. We were sinners. In fact, even if you're a Christian here, I'm a Christian, and I can say this about all of us. We were sinners, and even after our conversion, the death to sin that Paul speaks about here in Romans 6, we still are sinners, We'll read about that, especially in Romans 7. Paul talks about himself as being still a sinner. But the point is, because of our death to sin here in this life, there is a changed relationship to sin. Let's just look at verse 7 for a moment. We've already looked at it. But it says, For he who has died, meaning died in Christ when he became a Christian, has been freed from sin. He has a new relationship to sin. Same with verse 14 again. Paul speaking about a Christian and what happens to him in the here and now in this life. He says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Remember how we've looked at it in the recent weeks. If we're a Christian, God has translated us from that realm of sin and condemnation and death, and he's brought us into a different realm the life of um, righteousness, justification, and life. Everything is different. You're not under law, but under grace. A new relationship to sin. And then another way that Christ's death to sin is <clears throat> different from the death to sin that we experience in our conversion is this. 
Our redemption from sin, in a sense, occurs in stages. Now, I said once you're converted, you're saved once for all. You don't have to go back and die to sin again, not in an initial way in which you come out of Satan's kingdom and into Christ. But there's a sense in which our death, our, our, our salvation is not just a one step process. If you just look over at Romans 8.23 for a moment, you'll see this. Paul mentions in verse 21, in verse 20 and 21, that the creation we're in because of the curse coming from Adam's sin is also under the curse. The creation is. Inanimate objects even are under the curse. Things like trees and flowers and animals even, are, things like that, are under the curse. And then we're told in verse 22 that that makes the whole creation, not just believers in Christ, groan until there's a liberation from that bondage that we're now in. And then verse 23, and not only they, that's the whole creation, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that is Christians, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So um, you might say, well, hold it. Aren't we already adopted into God's family if we're believers? Yes. Well, what are we waiting for then? Well, read the whole text. We're eagerly waiting for our adoption. Paul says there's a different adoption than the one you've already experienced when you're converted and been brought into God's family. It's the redemption of our body. You're not only made God's son truly and been given an initial likeness to him inwardly and in your conduct and your thoughts, in that day you will be given a complete likeness to God, we could say the God-man, Jesus Christ, he now has a resurrection body, one which will never die again. You will, after the resurrection day, when Christ comes again. A difference between our dying to sin and Christ's death at this point is this. Our redemption from sin occurs in stages. Remember, he came into the world to deal with sin. He, ha he hanged on the cross and did that Here's his relationship to sin anymore. Done with it. Would to God, we could say that right now. Ah, one day we will. But it's not yet. His fight against sin and his victory over sin was once for all. Ours is both once for all in our conversion. Verse 7 he who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. I'll add any more, for you are not under law but under grace. There's been a definitive break with sin in the life of every true believer that he will never go back to. He will never go back to bondage to sin like an unbeliever, like he was before God saved him. He never will. However, for the Christian, the struggle against sin continues throughout the rest of this life. It is a lifelong struggle for the entirety of the Christian life. Let's turn for a moment to a parallel passage to this. It's not in one of Paul's epistles, but it's in one of Peter's. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 3. I preached this some years ago, so I'm not going to re-preach it right now, just make some points here. I believe it is a parallel passage to Romans 6. I think that's the best way to understand it. That's how I looked at it then. Now that I'm preaching through Romans 6, I look at it that way all the more. Peter said at the end of 2 Peter 3 that Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. So I don't know if that meant Peter felt he didn't understand everything Paul wrote, but I think he did understand Romans 6 because he wrote the same thing here in 1 Peter 4. 
He says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, when did that happen? On the cross. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now we can see how that's true about Christ. Hebrews said he came into the world, he dealt with sin on the cross, he's done. It's behind him. He doesn't have to do it again. But remember, there's this doctrine of union with Christ. So Paul is saying something that applies to us in our lives, and you'll see that that, that must be the case when we get to verses 2 and 3. Because here's what that says. He who has suffered in the flesh, reading the end of Romans 4, uh, 1 Peter 4.1, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We know that's true of Christ. But how does it apply to us? Verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now that does not apply to Christ, does it? He never lived any part of his life for the lusts of men. Not a minute. But Peter's saying now, because of what your union with Christ, who suffered in the flesh and has ceased from sin, and there's a way that those words can apply to you when you were converted, there's a sense in which you suffered in the flesh. Some conversions are more traumatic than others. Think of Paul's, think of um, John Bunyan's, think of Martin Luther's, very traumatic. Some you look back and say, now I'm not exactly sure when God saved me. But for everybody, if you really underwent a death to sin and resurrection to newness of life in Christ, that is something that is a tumultuous thing. That is an earth-shaking thing looked at from a, a biblical objective perspective. And that's what Peter is saying happened when you were saved. So now you no longer should live the rest of your time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Verse 3, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in licentiousness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You could take those words and, and paste them there in the margin of Romans 6, I believe, would be a good, a good move. I'm not saying you have to mess up your Bibles that way. I'm just saying that's from the standpoint of their teaching the same things. That's the idea. For Christ, his work in relationship to sin, that is, breaking the power of it for his people, that is ended. That is over. He's done doing that. He who has suffered in the flesh in terms of Christ, he dies no more. He's done suffering in that sense. For the believer, how is that true? How, how is it true in light of what everything we've seen in Romans 6 and what we just saw in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 3? How is this true about the believer that we can say, he who has suffered in the flesh, if it means conversion... He's done with sin. It means it in this way. The believer's relationship to sin, as we've been seeing, is now drastically changed. It is drastically changed. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks. If you're a believer, that means a decisive blow to sin has happened in your life. You have the right to assume everything is different now when it comes to your relationship to sin. Not absolutely everything. You still do it. But mainly, a death blow has been done to sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Verse 14. Verse 7. He who has died has been freed from sin. Satan cannot lead you around by the nose, like he does unbelievers in this world. He can't. A death blow has been done to sin. Been given to sin. As we've seen, there are remaining pockets of resistance. Within us there are. There are still battles with sin, yes. But as I said, Romans 6, 7, Romans 6, 14... 1 Peter 4, 1. 
We have a new relationship to sin, which means that sin is no longer our master. Here's the point. Thinking of the basis of our confidence. Christ's death was a death to sin, so was ours. Here's the point. God, because of Christ's work on the cross and my union with him and my death in him to sin when I was converted, God has now made me different. I'm dead to sin in that way. Christ, through his work on the cross, has made me different. If you're a Christian, that's what you can say. You have to say it. Or if you don't say that, then just please don't say you're a Christian. Help yourself and everyone in the world and just don't say it if God hasn't changed you. But as a Christian, I can say the Holy Spirit of God who has come to indwell me from the time I was converted has made me different. I have a new attitude towards sin. This is, here's my attitude towards sin now. Here is the believer's attitude towards sin. I used to mark out the areas of sin that were my favorites. I marked them out. And they were protected areas for me. You tried to cross into them, and I'd say, no, get out. If someone tried to help me by pointing out my sin admonishing me about my sin I said stop right there ain't no sin who do you think you are and what do you think you're doing anyways it's different now someone tries to help me point out my sin admonish me about my sin I mean, this is it's really a miracle because I tell you, I don't resent it. I don't fume. Walk away mumbling under my breath. Who does he think he is anyways? I don't condemn him as a legalist because he wants to talk about sin in my life. Or the way the law of God condemns those things. Here's what I do. Now, granted, this is on my best days. But here's my point. Since God has translated me from the kingdom of sin and death and brought me into the kingdom of the son of his love, it really is different. My life really is different. So I confess. I've done it many times here publicly. I confess that I still have those sins in me, even some of those sins that I used to put signs around, no trespassing, keep off. And here's what I do about those things now. I admit that those things are sins. I confess them as sins when they rear their ugly heads in my life. I regret in my quiet moments before God and times of meditation, I regret that I still have to deal with those things. If someone reproves me, I don't say, get out of here. I hang my head. I agree with my reprover. I thank him for his faithfulness. I pray for grace to overcome those things. And that's not just true for me. It's true for all Christians. I know that. How? Because I read it in the Bible and I've seen it in your lives. I thank God for it. So there's the second thing. Second way we know that, uh, the second ground we have for this confidence. First, Christ's death was final. Christ's death was a death to sin. And remember, these things are going to have some uh, mirror image in our lives in some way. Now the third thing is this. Christ now lives to God. This is the last half of verse 10. For, death, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That's what we just saw. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. All right, so Christ died, he was buried, then he rose. A real resurrection, a physical resurrection. Because he did that, 
Every true believer in Christ will one day be raised from the dead in what the New Testament calls the resurrection of life and will live forever in glory in your new body that is like Christ's in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the resurrection we're waiting for, the redemption of our bodies. Christ now lives to God. He lives to God. We will one day live to God. The great difference for us will be we used to sin, we still sin as Christians. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are looking very much forward to when we will never sin again, and that will be a great difference for us. What's the difference now with Christ? He never did sin. What is it for him to live to God when we think of this whole relationship to sin? Well, Jesus never did sin. He was the perfect man. But sin did greatly affect his earthly life. It greatly affected him in what theologians have called his state of humiliation from the time of his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary till the time of his resurrection. He was greatly affected by sin at every point, we could say. He battled the devil. He battled temptation to sin, though he never sinned and he could not sin. He did battle temptation. You read Mark 4, I'm sorry, the beginning of Matthew 4 and the beginning of Luke 4. It was real. It was a real battle against the devil and the powers of darkness. But unlike us, as I said, he never did sin. He never could sin. But at the same time, the Bible also says he took on sin, as I've been explaining when he died on the cross. Why was that? Died for your sins and my sins. He took on sin. Just like we say, the righteousness of Christ is given to you if you're a believer in him. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, your sins were given to him when he hung on the cross. God put your sins on him, on his back. He came into a world of sin and he lived in that sin, that sin-cursed world we read about in Romans 8 a few minutes ago. He came into this world, Paul said in Galatians 4.4, made under the law. And he had to live in obedience to God's law just as if he were a sinner who needed to turn from sin toward obedience to God. It was the effects of sin when he came into this world, as John said in John 1.11. He came to his own things, came to the city of God, the city of David, Jerusalem, where the temple of God was. Came to the temple built by God through Solomon, through Herod. Came to that temple that God wanted his people, he wanted it to be there so his people could worship him. Came to that. So people could worship God. In other words, in a sense, the star of the show showed up. But he wasn't received. He came to his own things, but his own people did not receive him, John wrote. As Isaiah said, he was despised and rejected by men. Throughout his earthly life, Jesus saw, he experienced, he felt the misery of sin. He experienced the sadness that sin has brought into this world, all without ever having sinned himself. He was persecuted. He was criticized, threatened, hated. Eventually, he was unjustly judged and condemned by Pilate and by the Jewish leaders. He was mocked, spit upon, beaten, and crucified. He never sinned. But sin did greatly affect his earthly life. Those things colored. They marked. They characterized. They affected the earthly life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So when Paul says at the end of Romans 6.10, now it's different having died to sin once for all and risen again, now the life that he lives, he lives to God. 
He doesn't live to, to sin in the way that we do with our remaining sin, that he sometimes sins. No, he never sinned. And he doesn't live it in the way that he did while he was on this earth either. Sin has no impact upon him. He lives to God. That means he doesn't commit sin and he doesn't experience any of the bad effects of sin like he did while he was on this earth. In fact, we could say no sin has any dampening influence on Jesus Christ's life in glory. That's living to God. John Murray wrote this. He said, no factor enters into his life now that is alien to the perfection of and the glory of God. Thanks be to God. He deserves it. And as our Savior, He earned it. And He earned it for us. It's coming one day. But our question is, so what's the present experience we have? That's the mirror image of Christ's rising to newness of life. Because Paul says it has happened for us now since we've been saved. What's the equivalent of that for us. Well, it's this. Because of our union with him, we have not only experienced something in a negative sense, death to sin, we also experience this, like Christ. We have newness of life. We live to God. We'll read about that in the last half of Romans 6. But we need to start thinking about it now. We live to God. It's the positive side of conversion, if you will. We died, but we've also been raised. We were dead and buried, but now we live. It means we've come out of our experience of conversion, walking in newness of life. All right? And so that brings us finally for today to the practical application of this in our lives. I think I might need to put off verse 11, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach it as if I... I explained it, and then, God willing, I'll come back and explain it later. Okay, what we've seen in this passage so far, they're all facts, right? You're a Christian, here's what happened. Since you're united with Christ, and we know He died, so He died, you're united to Him, that means you died. He rose, now He lives, you're united to Him, that means you rose in some way, and you're united because you're united to him and now you live. You live, as I said, it's a walking in newness of life. Those things are indicative. They're indicative. They're facts. Things that are true. Things that have happened. When we come to application, we're talking about imperatives, commands, things you must do. And Paul's making the connection here. Verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here are my two imperatives or practical applications for you. The first one is really just mine. It's not Paul's. He doesn't say here, um, be confident. But that's what I'm going to say. I'm taking that from verse 8 and following. Our confidence that we have because of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Christ died and he rose and now he lives. If we're Christians, we were in him when he died and when we were converted, we were in him when we died to sin and we're still in him when we've been raised to newness of life and we're walking in newness of life, all right? So we have that oneness Here's my point. We should be confident about this as Christians. That we are in him and that we've died to sin and risen to newness of life. We shouldn't be as Christians constantly questioning whether these things are true of us. Paul states that they're true. He states it over and over again in these verses. Remember how I pointed out there's a lot of similarity. And so when he comes to verse 8, he says, now stop and think for a minute. Now if we died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him. In other words, it's an article of faith for us. If I've been converted, then I believe I live with him. Things are going to be different in my life. That's the confidence I'm talking about. Now, let me give just one pointed, narrow, focused application on this point, especially if you're someone who constantly questions whether these things are true about you. 
And my exhortation is this. That's not healthy for you to be doing that. If you're a Christian, it is not healthy and it's not a sign that you have a very healthy sensitivity to sin. See what I'm saying? It's not healthy if we are constantly questioning whether we're Christians when we are. I am not saying never raise the question. I've preached before on self-examination. I've said it's a good thing. It's a biblical thing. I think Christians should do it every day. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, look, if things are going in your life in such a way that it raises a question, whether you really are a Christian, he's a Christian, he says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Do it. There can be special occasions when you really need to do it and take it very seriously. Self-examination is an excellent thing on a regular basis. In a sense, it's a lost art in our day and age. It's healthy to do all the time, but to do in a sober-minded, biblically-ordered, constructive way. Meaning, the ultimate goal of examining yourself is to take you to Christ. Oh, but I always see sin when I examine myself. Ugly sin, terrible sin, persistent sin that doesn't seem to go away no matter how much I've tried and prayed and read and mortified. Doesn't go away. Here's how it should work. When you see that, it should lay you low in the dust. And the response should not be, I guess I'm just not a Christian. It should be, I guess I need to go to the cross again. Like Paul did, as we'll see at the end of Romans 7, when he said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? In other words, my remaining sin. And he didn't answer, I don't think anybody ever can. He answered, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you should do. So that self-examination, if you're a Christian, will always end at Christ. And with Paul, lead you to thanksgiving and rejoicing. But then the other practical application is not just that we should be confident. The other application is we should reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'll get to that when I get to verse 11, because that's what verse 11 is all about. Let me just close my um, Christmas Eve day message with going back to my text of Matthew 121, where I started. Matthew 121 said to Joseph, you should call this baby's name Jesus, Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. There's another text, something like it, where the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.15 some similar words. He said, this is a very faithful, a very trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's why he became a man. That's why the Holy Spirit worked to put a woman who was a virgin, to, to make it so that she was with child without, as she said, ever having known a man physically, he put a child in her womb and that child was the savior of the world. Think of it now in terms of Romans 6, because I said Romans 6, in a sense, opens up one aspect of the way that Jesus came to save people from their sins. This is why he came into the world, to save his people from their sins. How did he do it in terms of Romans 6? He did it by changing people. He saved them from their bondage to sin here in this life. Well, didn't he come into the world so that people's sins would be forgiven? Yes. Didn't he come into the world to save people from hell on the judgment day? Yes. But that's not all he came to save people from. Romans 6 tells us 
He came to save people from sin in their day to day. That they might walk in newness of life. That's why he came. Yes, to forgive sins. Yes, to save us all from eternal damnation and suffering in hell. Yes, but according to Romans 6, also to change people now. To break the power of sin in their lives in this world. So there's the message of Christmas for you. It's this. Even if you're not a Christian... Even if you've never thought about becoming a Christian, even if you've never heard the gospel before, even if you don't want to become a Christian, here's the message of Christmas for you today. Jesus Christ can change you. You may not think that's a good thing. I bet I could find people who know you who think it would be a great thing. The Bible says it is a great thing for everyone. He can change you, and I mean change you entirely for the better. Specifically, he can change your relationship to sin. There's a terrible narrative, a terrible false narrative in this world about Christians. It's that conversion, Christian conversion, when they become a Christian, makes people think that they are superior Superior to all other people. And conversion to Christianity makes people, this is part of the terrible false narrative, makes people look down on others. Makes them all self-righteous. You've heard this before, maybe you think it. Makes them like the Pharisees in the New Testament. If you've ne never read about them, you can read the gospel accounts. That's what the Pharisees were like. People that Jesus constantly dealt with. They did think they were better than others. They didn't think they needed forgiveness. They didn't think they needed a savior. And they looked down on other people. You read the Gospels, you can see it right there. But you'll also see that Jesus, in his interaction with those Pharisees, constantly opposed them and rebuked them. He never told them, yeah, you guys are the ones that have got this right. He never did that. He wrote in, he said in Luke 18, verse 9, or, or I should say, Luke wrote this about Jesus' parable in Luke 18. It says, he spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves. They thought they were all right. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who despised others. That's the false narrative about Christians. He told the parable of the Good Samaritan about these self-righteous Jews that they wouldn't help a man because he was a Samaritan. No, that's a false narrative that Christians are self-righteousness and they look down on everyone else. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and then he concluded the sentence this way, not one of which I once was. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In other words, he still identified with his past life because he knew it was true. And it was his history. And he says, that's me. I'm not in myself superior to anybody. Like we're going to see at the end of Romans 7, wretched man that I am. Those are Paul's words. Christ saves his people from sin and to a life of humility and of constant dependence on him and a life of love for their fellow men. And we want you if you're not a believer here today, we want you to know this life. And we want you to know it because it is so much better than a life of selfishness and greediness and bitterness and hopelessness. It is so much better. We want you to know the Savior who came into the world to save people from their sins. And who will save you if you will repent of your sins and put your trust in him and in him alone because he's the only one who can save you. And if you do that, 
you will have the merriest Christmas ever. And you will have the happiest new year. May God grant you that blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus who came into this world to save his people from their sins. May many sinners come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ today as his gospel is preached all throughout this world. And we ask it in his name. Amen.